On Wednesday, a far-left Bernie Sanders supporter who despised President Trump opened fire on Republican congresspeople practicing for a bipartisan charity baseball game. Now, we all know that if the situation had been reversed, if a President Trump supporter and Bernie hater had opened fire on congressional Democrats, we would be treated to the full spectacle of media faux outrage. We get long-winded stem winders about Republicans creating a climate of hate and violence. We'd receive stern talking tos about gun culture and polarizing rhetoric. We know this because it's been a strategic mainstay for Democrats for half a century, going all the way back to the left blaming the right for a climate of hate that supposedly led to JFK's assassination by a commie in 1963. The left has blamed talk radio for the Oklahoma City bombing, Sarah Palin in the right for the attempted assassination of Gabby Giffords by a mentally ill man, by the way. Bernie Sanders even attempted to raise money off that canard. Confederate flag owners for a massacre at a historically black church, and President Trump for a stabbing in Portland committed by a Bernie Sanders supporter. But... Is it right to blame Sanders and leftist ideology more broadly for Wednesday shooting? No, it isn't. Okay, rhetoric is not directly responsible for violence unless it advocates violence. Radical jihadism advocates violence. The bulk of its supporters know this and support violence. A solid contingent of its followers participate in violence. The same is not true for American brand political leftism, as vile as it is. For the right to equate verbiage with violence, no matter how inflammatory the verbiage, is to fall prey to the same snowflake syndrome the right condemns on college campuses. There is no logical gap between attempting to blame right-wing speakers for supposed violent speech in opposing Black Lives Matter and attempting to blame Sanders for the sins of a random follower. This leaves two questions on the table. First, are we living through a more toxic political climate than ever before in American history, promoting individual acts of violence among the mentally unstable? And second, are we in danger of blurring the lines between passionate rhetoric and actual advocacy toward violence? Well, as far as the first question goes, the answer is obviously no. It would take really a lot of ignorance of American history to believe that our current political climate is worse than Civil War-era America or even late 1960s America, if only because our underlying problems are significantly less horrifying. Yes, our political climate is toxic. Just yesterday, Virginia Governor Terry McAuliffe, who attempted to blame gun control for the shooting, suggested that the Trump campaign or someone associated with it had acted treasonably with regard to Russia. The entire resistance is built on the rhetoric of a wartime underground. By the same token, the right has taken to using war language far more regularly even than it did in the Obama era. We're told we're in a civil war, that the media are our enemies, but here's the truth. Nobody took this stuff particularly seriously. We can all tell the differences between rhetorical flourishes and violent advocacy. Except when we can't. Which brings us to the second question. Are we moving beyond purple language and into the realm of actual violent advocacy? On both left and right, the answer seems to be yes. On the left, thanks to politicians attempting to capitalize on public anger, groups like Antifa run free in major American cities. Acts of violence against Trump supporters are brushed off or treated by the media as he said, she said situations. On the right, too many Republicans ignore or downplay incidents like the Greg Gianforte incident in Montana or then-candidate Trump's talk about people paying their bills if they assaulted protesters. There are two ways to deal with the problem. First, we have to establish a bright-line rule. No defending or advocating violence. Period. End of story. Second, we should all probably take a deep breath before we hit send. It's not our fault if fringe characters take advantage of our language to do violence we never suggested and don't support. But let's all do our best, and yes, I'm including myself here, to use language we can defend morally. That doesn't mean tamping down our passion with regard to politics. It does mean thinking twice before hitting send on a tweet or Facebook post comparing Republicans to ISIS thanks to their healthcare policy, or suggesting that Democrats are eager to watch Americans die in a fiery incident, in terrorist incidents, because they oppose President Trump's travel ban. Perhaps the language of civil war is perfectly appropriate and we're willing to stand by it. So be it, but let's think it through. This seems like a decent thing to do if we wish to preserve some semblance of a social fabric. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is The Ben Shapiro Show.
So in the aftermath of yesterday's horrific congressional shooting and all prayers for, for Steve Scalise, the House Majority Whip, who apparently is still in critical condition, was undergoing surgery all throughout the night, and everybody should take a moment today and just say a prayer for Congressman Scalise. But in the aftermath of that, there have been a, a bunch of reactions that are quite fascinating. It seems like we are now on the verge of going too far in the other direction. What I mean by that is that if we were on the verge of going too far in the everyone is angry, let's shout at each other and hit each other with sticks direction, now it seems like we're in danger of going too far along the everybody just needs to never say anything that could offend anyone. And I want to be careful about what we say are the kinds of speech that are appropriate. And I'm talking about people on the right and the left. I want to be careful and go through what kinds of speech I think are really damaging and dangerous and which kinds of speech are just typical political rhetoric. Because this is the sort of situation where people could say, okay, nutcase went crazy and shot a bunch of people. Let's all get rid of all offensive rhetoric. Let's get back to this kind of faux civility. We'll never say anything inflammatory. We'll never say anything interesting. We'll never use language that is evocative. We all have to check ourselves all the, all the time at the door. I, I want to go through, I think there are three different types of language, and I want to go through those in a second and discuss which ones are acceptable, which ones are not. Obviously, none of this should be regulated, but which ones are acceptable and which ones are not in sort of everyday use, because I'm a little bit frightened that the snowflake syndrome that now attends to college campuses is being picked up by the right in response to the left. So the left always says people like me speaking on college campuses, well, that creates a climate of violence, and people are going to get hurt, so we have to shut down Shapiro. I don't want to see the same thing happen on the right with regard to people on the left, us saying, well, you know, when, when they say that Trump is un-American or when they say Trump is a tyrant, that's just bad and it gets people killed. I don't want to do that because, again, I like having the same moral standard for everyone. So I'm going to talk about that in just a second. But before I get to that, I first want to say thank you to our advertisers over at Wink. So you don't know anything about wine, but you have a dinner party tonight and you don't know which wine to bring. This is why you need to go over to wink.com, trywink.com, slash Ben. It's trywinc.com, slash Ben. What they do is they have a, a quick algorithm. You fill it out. It tells you, you, you put in sort of your tastes. What, what do you like to eat together? Do you like meat with certain flavors? Do you like things that are spicy? Do you like things that are sweet? And then they recommend a wine for you, and they send it direct to your door. And right now, trywink.com slash Ben means they'll offer listeners $20 off their first order when you go to trywink.com slash Ben. And their bottles are 13 bucks. They start at just 13 bucks. They are high-quality wine made directly by Wink. Everyone in the office, except for me, actually has, has tried the wine. This is why they're all drunken savages. But they, they, all, they all drink heavily all the time, but they think that the wine from Wink is the best wine. So trywink.com, T-R-Y-W-I-N-C.com slash Ben. Get $20 off your first order. And again, it helps ensure that you're getting the right wine for that dinner party. Make it look like you know what the hell you're talking about when you bring a bottle of wine to somebody's party. Trywink.com slash Ben. Trywink.com slash Ben. Use the slash Ben so they know we sent you. And also, so you get that $20 off your first your first buy plus complimentary shipping. So very cool. Okay, so uh, in the aftermath of the attack yesterday, uh, there was this brief moment where everybody came together. And everybody does this every so often. Right After Gabby Giffords, there was a 48-hour uh, period where people were nice to each other. After 9-11, there was a probably four-month period where everybody was really nice to each other. Yesterday, it was about a six-hour period. So <laughs> the amount of time we're nice to each other after a horrific incident that that really goes to the heart of America, has now been reduced to less than the amount of time that it takes for a yogurt to spoil if you leave it out of the refrigerator. But yesterday, people said the right things in the immediate aftermath of the attack. Here was Bernie Sanders. It was, remember, one of his volunteers who went out and shot somebody. The, the shooter was a Sanders-supporting, Trump-hating 
leftist maniac, and he specifically targeted congressional Republicans. If there hadn't been heroes on the ground there, two, two in particular, to put this guy down, probably 15 to 20 congressmen are dead today. Here's Bernie Sanders talking about how horrified he was to learn that it was one of his volunteers. I have just been informed that the alleged shooter at the Republican baseball practice this morning is someone who apparently volunteered on my presidential campaign. I am sickened by this despicable act, and let me be as clear as I can be. Violence of any kind is unacceptable in our society, and I condemn this action in the strongest possible terms. Real change can only come about through nonviolent action, and anything else runs counter to our most deeply held American values. I know I speak for the entire country in saying that my hopes and prayers are that Representative Scalise, congressional staff, and the Capitol Police officers who were wounded make a quick and full recovery. I also want to thank the Capitol Police for their heroic actions to prevent further harm. Okay, so there's Bernie Sanders saying exactly the right thing. Obviously, violent activity needs to be put aside. We're talking in a minute about whether the left is indeed putting aside violent rhetoric and violent activity, because I think the answer is in large measure no. But Sanders has actually been pretty consistent on this point, right? He was one of the guys who said that the riots at Berkeley, when Yiannopoulos went to Berkeley, he said that those riots were wrong. He said that Ann Coulter should speak uh, at Berkeley and shouldn't be shut down. So I can't blame Bernie Sanders per se for this. I know a lot of people are trying to because Bernie Sanders, they're trying to hold Bernie to his own standard. You know, back in 2011, Sanders fundraised off of the idea that Gabby Giffords was shot because Sarah Palin put some sort of targeting district map on her on her Facebook page. There was no link whatsoever between Palin and the shooter. Sanders raised money off of it anyway. So if you're going to hold the left to their own standards, if we're going to say that toxic rhetoric causes incidents like this, then you have to hold Bernie responsible. But I'm not Bernie. I thought it was wrong when Bernie did it. And so I'm not going to be Bernie now and say that it's that it's Bernie's fault. Paul Ryan, I thought, had a great response yesterday. Also, here's what he had to say on the floor of Congress. There are very strong emotions throughout this House today. We are all horrified by this dreadful attack on our friends and on our colleagues and those who serve and protect this Capitol. We are all praying for those who are attacked and for their families. Steve Scalise, Zachary Barth, Matt Micah, Special Agent David Bailey, Special Agent Crystal Griner. We are all giving our thoughts to those currently being treated for their injuries at this moment. And we are united. We are united in our shock. We are united in our anguish. An attack on one of us is an attack on all of us. Okay, so Paul Ryan, of course, saying the right things as well. Nancy Pelosi, the House Minority Leader, she said much the same thing. She said she was praying for Scalise and Trump. And then she, of course, came out immediately today and said that the climate of toxic political rhetoric in the country is the fault of Republicans. So that lasted for five entire seconds. Now, I want to go through, I think, some of the, some of the re- types of speech that are out there and whether we should hold them responsible for violence. John Nolte, I thought, had a really 
great piece over at Daily Wire today. Uh, Nolte is uh, is a firebrand for sure. And Nolte had a piece today talking about the case, basically, that CNN is responsible for this by CNN's own standard. And that's basically correct. CNN has said over and over and over that it was it was the Confederate flag that caused the shooting down at that historically black church in Charleston. They said that it was the Pizzagate conspiracy that caused Pizzagate guy to go and shoot up a, a restaurant. They said that it was Sarah Palin responsible for Gabby Giffords, all of it. And then they go out there and they say that the Shakespeare in the Park assassination of Trump thing is awesome. They hire Kathy Griffin and then reluctantly fire Kathy Griffin. Uh, they uh, CNN makes comments all the time about how, I mean, they tried to connect Steve Scalise, this congressman, to the KKK. Yeah, all of this is, is, it goes to the hypocrisy of the left. And I think that it demonstrates, the, the left is rightly getting batted around for this today. It demonstrates that the right should not make the same mistake. We should not make the same mistake where we say, okay, political rhetoric is connected to individual actions because the next time some kook happens to have listened to Rush Limbaugh at any point and then goes and shoots somebody, the entire left is going to say, well, it's Rush Limbaugh's fault. You know, this guy who shot up the Congress people, he was a big Rachel Maddow fan. Is that Rachel Maddow's fault? No, I don't think that it's Rachel Maddow's fault. So there are three there are, there are three sorts of speech that I think are worthwhile considering. And and I think that we need to be exact in how we do this, because I, I sort of argued it vaguely yesterday, but I didn't think I was exact enough. So the, here, there, there are three types of speech that are worth considering as to whether they cross a line or not, whether we ought to think twice before using them. And two of them, I think that they do cross a line and they are becoming more and more prevalent. So number one, speech that actively advocates violence. So it's actually illegal to tell people, go hit that guy, right? You're not actually allowed to say that in the United States. But there's something that sort of borders on it, which is violence is kind of great. You should go do it. Not like a specific direction that you should do violence to any one person, but a generalized notion that you should go do violence to people generally. Jesse Ben is a columnist for the Huffington Post, and he wrote that a violent response to Trump would be, quote, as logical as any. He wrote that last week in the Huffington Post. He has a he has a cartoon on the top, it's pinned at the top of his Twitter feed that shows the it shows uh, Peppy the Frog being literally beheaded, and then there's a swastika on Hamrod. So there is this this element of the left that actually is good with violence and advocates for violence and makes room for violence. You see it more broadly on the left when it comes to people like Maxine Waters, who'd said that the L.A. riots were an L.A. uprising, or Marilyn Mosby, uh, in, or uh, rather, not Marilyn Mosby, the, the, the mayor of, of Baltimore, who had said that she was, Stephanie Rawlings-Blake, who had said that, that she had made room for rioters in Baltimore when things went bad, or even President Obama sort of incentivizing rioters in Ferguson, you know, that sort of stuff is really dangerous, and there is a link between that sort of rhetoric and violence. When Antifa pushes actual violence at Berkeley, we're in that category. And yes, when President Trump says, or when he was then candidate Trump, when he says that he's going to pay the legal bills of people who punch other people, we're in that category. That sort of stuff is dangerous. That sort of stuff is linked to violence. People who actively advocate violence are part of the problem. Okay, category number two, people who defend violence. So this is slightly bigger. Okay, this is a, a bigger group of people, a very small group of people who actively advocate violence. Then there are people who defend violence. And that is, on the left, everybody at the Middlebury University administration who said it was okay for people to assault a protest, to, to assault, assault a professor at the Charles Murray event. These are the, the mayor of Berkeley, who allows Antifa to run roughshod through the city and hit people and assault people, and then says we can't do anything about it. It's the, the administrators of Cal State LA who told the police to basically stand down so students could hurt other students who are trying to hear a lecture that I was giving. 
It's also true of people who are defending outright Greg Gianforte, the Montana congressional candidate, or making light of him body slamming a reporter. Okay, when you defend violence, you are part of the problem. You are contributing to a greater violent uh, a greater violent climate in the country. There's a third type of rhetoric, however, that I want to be very careful about because I think that we are now in danger of falling into the snowflake trap, which I'll describe in just a second. But before I get to that, I want to say thank you to our sponsors over at Blinkist. So you don't have a lot of time to gather information. I sit around reading books all day. I have a career that allows me to do that. Most people don't. Most people, you're in the car, you got 15 minutes. What sort of information can you grab outside of the Ben Shapiro show? That's where Blinkist comes in. So Blinkist is an app that essentially summarizes the main points of all these books that you definitely want to read, which is awesome because even if you read a 400-page book, the amount of takeaway that you're going to get from that might just fit into 15 minutes. What Blinkist does is they summarize the key points of books, and then they allow you to, to take those in. So if you have an hour drive, you can basically read four books in one day. They have 2,000 of the best-selling nonfiction books transformed into these powerful packs that they call Blinks that you can read or listen to in just 15 minutes. Books like Why Nations Fail, 500-page book, great book. I've read the entire book. But do I remember more than 15 minutes of content from it? Probably not. Blinkist, you go there and you listen to the summary of the book, and suddenly you know as much about that book as I probably do, even though I actually sat there for hours and hours reading the book. And this is true for a wide variety of books, and it's got fields ranging from productivity to business to science to history to self-improvement. Fantastic, fantastic app. I love it. It's Blinkist, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T, B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T dot com slash Ben. If you want to go over there right now and uh, you go to Blinkist dot com slash Ben and that allows you to get a three month period for free when you get a yearly subscription or a free trial period right now so you can give it a listen. You get that free trial or three months off your yearly plan when you join today. It's Blinkist dot com slash Ben. Awesome service. I use it myself. Very cool. Okay, so I've discussed the first two types of rhetoric that I think are off-limits or should be off-limits. That doesn't mean illegal, but it does mean that people of good conscience should not use them. Then there is the third group, and this is where I see the right starting to make a mistake. There's this third part of, of speech where people on the right are beginning to veer off into snowflake land. And I'll give you an example. So Representative Jack Bergman, Republican, he comes out and he blames the media. He was at this, this shooting. He blamed the media for complicity in the attack. Here's what he had to say. Do you agree with that? Do you think that, that the hateful rhetoric has gotten just too well, I, hot? I, Go ahead. I agree. Yeah, I agree with I agree with Rodney wholeheartedly in that the hateful rhetoric serves no positive purpose. In fact, today it obviously served a negative purpose. But unfortunately, and I'm looking at all of the media in the eye when I say this, friendships and cordial relationships don't make good news. So I can tell you, especially as the president of the freshman class of Republicans, we are united along with our Democratic freshman uh, counterparts to bring civility back to the 115th Congress. Okay, that's all wonderful and that's all good, but the idea that the the media is to blame here, I think, is over the top, and I'll explain why in a second. Eric Bowling on Fox News, who's used some colorful language in his time, he said sort of the same thing. He said, how many innocents have to die before we realize that words matter? Spill blood, die. Really, ma'am? Snoop Dogg's gun, Kathy Griffin's head, Shakespeare's bloody rampage, it goes on and on. How many innocent people have to die before we realize that words do matter? Crazy people act on the crazy things they hear from politicians and celebrities. Think before you utter those blind, hateful words next time, liberals, because there are crazy people out there taking your metaphors literally. 
before you liberals blow a gasket saying I'm being partisan, I will tell you, I will guarantee you this, I would be writing the same monologue and delivering the same monologue if it were a Democrat softball practice targeted and terrorized. That, I promise you. Okay, maybe, maybe not. Mark Stein says sort of the same thing. He says the big problem here is the left wants to dehumanize their political opponents. The left wants to denormalize and dehumanize, to use your words, its political opposition. And they do that in a variety of ways. Uh, so, for example, when uh, Charles Murray wants to give a speech at Middlebury College, they have to have a riot. They don't have a debate in which they demolish his argument. They don't want to win the debate. They want to prevent the debate taking place. Okay, and I think that that's a good example, but where I see this going off the rails, I don't think Bowling or Stein say anything deeply wrong there, and the examples they use are, are from the first two categories of speech, but what I do see is a lot of people today saying things like, well, you know, the resistance, and Coulter is a column today, she says, the resistance finally goes live fire. Okay, we called ourselves the Tea Party. The Tea Party, if you recall, was actually a resistance movement to the government, okay, that didn't was not averse to using... It was not averse to using violence back in the day. I mean, the Tea Party ended up becoming the American Revolution. The idea that if you use rhetoric that is charged, that this is the same thing as using rhetoric that defends violence or advocates violence, I think it is a dangerous precedent that we are setting, and I can see it being flipped very, very easily. I don't see an innate problem with saying that a president is acting tyrannical. I don't think that's calling for the president to be assassinated. I don't think the vast majority of Americans think that's calling for the president to be assassinated. When people call themselves the Tea Party or the Resistance, I don't think just because you say you're a member of the Resistance, that means that you're like a member of the French Resistance and you're going to go out there and start shooting Republicans. You know, when, when people who are pro-life talk about the killing of babies in the womb, I don't think that that's an implicit call to murder abortionists. I don't. And the vast majority of pro-life people, I mean, virtually all of them know that, right? And the same thing is true on the left. When they say that on the left, that Republicans want to kill granny, that they're, they're murderers, they're like ISIS because of Trump's health care plan. So I think that's stupid. Yeah, I think it's ridiculous and stupid. Do I also think that it's causing violence? Not really. I mean, you know, when I, when I wrote the book Bullies, which is a New York Times bestseller, and Bullies is all about the left's attempt to demonize us, to attack us on a character level for our political views. And I said this is morally wrong. It is morally wrong, but it is not necessarily connected with violence. So the left is constantly attempting to say everybody's a racist, sexist, bigot, homophobe. That doesn't necessarily mean that they want everybody to be killed and... Well, I, th I object to the language on the grounds that you should have evidence for the assertions that you put forth. I think there's a bigger risk right now that in a climate like this, people are going to immediately start saying, well, you're not allowed to say charged things. Because if you say charged things, that means some crazy is going to go off. If we judge the value of political rhetoric by the crazy who goes off, there's not going to be a lot of political rhetoric left. If, if we're going to play this game where some nutcase shoots up congressional staffers and shoots up a congressman, and he watches Rachel Maddow, so we blame Rachel Maddow, then we can't be surprised when the left turns around, they already do this because they're because they're awful. We can't be surprised when the left turns around and says, well, it's Sean Hannity's fault if somebody goes nuts and shoots up a Democratic Congress office. Uh, you know, the left does it anyway. So I understand the temptation. This turnabout is fair play temptation. That doesn't mean that it's right. So I think that we have to be careful about this routine. Now, on, the, on that last point, as far as demonization and, and demonizing your political opposition, last point here, I think that it's a gray area. So I think some demonization is okay, some demonization is not okay, some demonization is sort of acceptable. What is not acceptable is demonization combined with defensive violence or advocacy of violence. So if you demonize your political opponent, and then you say, oh yeah, and by the way, if you punch somebody in the face, that's okay. Right? If you say, my opponent's a Nazi, I think that that's basically 
you may be wrong. You may be stupid. What you're saying may be dumb, but I don't think that it's linked to violence. If you say my opponent is a Nazi and it's okay to punch Nazis, I think that you start to get into really morally dicey territory. So I wanted to make those distinctions because I don't want a standard set whereby anything political anybody says, we're going to now judge the value of that politics based on the outlier who is vulnerable to suggestion and then goes out and shoots people. I just think that's a dangerous thing. Okay, well, as we continue here on the Ben Shapiro Show, we're going to be talking about President Trump and what he says is a witch hunt against him, this obstruction of justice news, Washington Post breaks last night, that Robert Mueller, who is the the special counsel, is now investigating Trump for obstruction of justice. We'll talk about that, what it means, why it's happening, and why Trump is actually kind of right on this one. We'll talk about that, but you have to subscribe over at Daily Wire for that. So for $8 a month, you too can get a subscription over at dailywire.com. That means that you can be also be part of the mailbag. Tomorrow we're going to be doing the mailbag live, and my dad's going to be in the studio, so we're going to be talking about everything father and son related. If you have questions for my father, then definitely write those in, and we'll ask them to him during the mailbag segment of the, of the show. If you want an annual subscription right now, you get an annual subscription, you get a free signed copy of the book that I wrote with my dad, Say It So, all about fathers and sons and baseball. Great Father's Day gift, even if it comes a little bit late. It's a great belated Father's Day gift. Uh, terrific book, uh, if I do say so myself. And you get that free signed when you get an annual subscription. So go over and check it out. You want to listen later, go to iTunes or SoundCloud and make sure that you leave us a review and subscribe. We always appreciate it. I'm Ben Shapiro. This is the largest conservative podcast in the country. Okay, so in other news, the left is in celebration mode because the Washington Post breaks last night that Robert Mueller, who's the special counsel, is investigating President Trump for obstruction of justice, according to five sources. So, of course, the right immediately goes into these leaks are awful mode. They are. They're bad. They're really bad. We've also told that story a thousand times. I'm not sure I have the energy to fulminate anymore over what has become an unbelievably leaky administration. Yes, there are people out to get Trump. Yes, they are leaking material. All of that is true, okay? All those people should be prosecuted if they are divulging classified material to places they should not be divulging it. Okay, end of story. Those people are out to get Trump. He's right when he says that it's egregious and that there is an attempt to to nail him to the wall. Okay, all of that is the case. Okay, meanwhile, the left is celebrating over this Washington Post report. Here is Jeffrey Tubin over on CNN saying, I told you, I told you so that Trump was going to be investigated. Well, Anderson, it's a huge deal, and I don't hate to tell you that I told you so. Okay, so according to the Washington Post, basically they say that they, they, there was a quote, major turning point in the nearly year-old FBI investigation, which until recently focused on Russian meddling during the presidential campaign and on whether there was any coordination between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. The Post report cited unnamed officials who claimed that, quote, the obstruction of justice investigation into the president began days after Comey was fired on May 9th. Mueller's office has now taken up that work, and the preliminary interviews scheduled with intelligence officials indicate his team is actively pursuing potential witnesses inside and outside the government. One of the publication's anonymous sources underlined these interviews, quote, suggest Mueller sees the attempted obstruction of justice question as more than just a he said, she, he said, he said dispute between the president and the FBI director. Apparently, Mueller's investigators are also trying to track down any evidence of possible financial crimes among Trump's associates, as I said the lawyer for Trump, Kasowitz, he said the FBI leak of information regarding the president is outrageous, inexcusable, and illegal. Okay, so I want to go through this because Trump this morning tweets out. He tweets, quote, they made up a phony collusion with the Russian story, found zero proof. Now they go for obstruction of justice on the phony story. Nice. You are witnessing the single greatest all caps witch hunt in American political history led by some very bad and conflicted people. Hashtag MAGA. 
okay, do I think that Trump helps himself by speaking for himself on this stuff? I really don't. But I don't think that he's wrong here. I, I don't think that Mueller is bad or conflicted. I, I think that's over the top. But there are clearly Democrats who want to see Trump convicted or at least investigated for obstruction of justice. Now, let's be clear about something. It is not surprising that Mueller is investigating obstru obstruction of justice. The former FBI director, Comey, he testified last week that he thought Mueller would be investigating obstruction like a week ago. And it's kind of unclear what Mueller would be investigating on the criminal side other than obstruction of justice. This is a point that Andy McCarthy makes over at, the, over at National Review, which is that when it comes to the special counsel, the special counsel's obligation is to investigate criminal matters, not counterintelligence matters. The Trump-Russia stuff is a counterintelligence matter. It's, it's counterintelligence investigation typically carried out by the FBI. So what exactly is the special counsel even supposed to be investigating? This is why McCarthy opposed Rosenstein appointing a, a is it, I think it's Frankenstein, right? It's Frankenstein, not Frankenstein. I, I believe Rosenstein is his name. In any case, Andy McCarthy opposed Rosenstein appointing a special counsel because he said there's nothing for Rosenstein to actually have the special counsel investigate. There's no ongoing criminal matter. Here is what Andy McCarthy writes at National Review. If Rod Rosenstein had been following the regulation, he never would have appointed Mueller. The regulation calls for the Deputy Attorney General to identify a criminal investigation of a person or matter that the special counsel is appointed to conduct. To the contrary, Rosenstein's appointment of Mueller cited the investigation that was described by then-FBI Director in his March 20th congressional testimony. As Comey made crystal clear, that investigation, the Russia investigation, is a counterintelligence investigation. It is not a criminal investigation of a person or matter. So that is basically true. I would add one caveat here, which is that apparently Comey also testified that General Flynn was being investigated criminally, which does make a difference. That means that presumably Mueller's jurisdiction extends to the investigation of Flynn. And here is where things start to get dicey, because the real reason that Mueller was appointed in the first place was not because of the Trump-Russia investigation, right? We all know the real reason that Mueller was appointed by Rosenstein in the first place. It was because James Comey, the FBI director, leaked to the press that he had memos detailing Trump's pressure on him over the investigation, which means that obstruction was always the central point in Mueller's basic mandate. So now we have this weird situation, and Trump is right to hit on this. We have this weird situation where there's no underlying crime. We have no evidence of an underlying crime that Trump colluded with Russia, but we do have at least a narrative that the left wants to tell about obstruction, right? And the narrative goes something like this. That's not Mueller's fault, by the way, right? That's not what, that's not Mueller's fault. Mueller was appointed because of stuff that Trump did, right? He, there are three things that Trump did that basically led to Mueller's appointment and led to him being in a position where he's now being investigated for obstruction, even though he didn't originally do anything wrong. Like during the campaign, he didn't collude with the Russians. So number one, Trump supposedly pressured Comey and others regarding Flynn. Right, so Comey claimed that Trump asked him for a loyalty oath, as you recall, and Trump said he hoped Comey could drop the investigation into Flynn. Now, according to Comey, Flynn is under criminal investigation, so that would be Trump attempting to interfere with an active criminal investigation. That's not necessarily obstruction of justice because no charges have been brought. There is no active criminal investigation to the point of it becoming a judicial proceeding under the law. I talked about obstruction of justice earlier. That's what it means. But there have also been media reports that Trump asked the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, and the NSA leader, Mike Rogers, if they could tell Comey to back off of Flynn. So point number one in the chain of events that leads to Mueller being appointed is Trump pressuring Comey and others to kill the Flynn investigation, supposedly. Two, Trump fires Comey. 
So Comey should have been fired, but Trump had a thousand different ways he could have done it. Instead, he picked the stupidest possible way. And then finally, three, Trump goes on national television and says, quote, direct quote, in fact, when I decided to just do it, fire Comey, I said to myself, I said, you know, this Russia thing with Trump and Russia is a made-up story. It's an excuse by the Democrats for having lost an election. So he explicitly connects the Russia story, and Flynn presumably, to the attempt to knock off Comey. And then Trump met with the Russians the day after the firing, confirmed by the White House, and told them, quote, I faced great pressure because of Russia. That's taken off. Okay, so here is the truth. Here's what actually happened. I have now been saying this for nigh on two months, okay? Here's what actually, or at least a month and a half, ever since Comey was fired. What actually happened here is Trump got pissed that Comey would not publicly acknowledge what he had privately, privately acknowledged to Trump several times, namely that Trump was not under federal investigation, and so he got mad and he fired Comey. And then he went out and he mouthed off about it. That's basically all that happened here. But now Trump is being investigated for obstruction because Trump acted in the dumbest possible way. Right, And these superfluous slams on Comey drove Comey to a revenge play that resulted in Mueller's appointment. It's not really fair to blame Mueller for that. Mueller's the one who was appointed, right? I mean, they had to find a guy. He appointed Mueller. Mueller was well-respected. Newt Gingrich even was praising Mueller. If Trump thinks Mueller is unfairly targeting him over a trumped-up obstruction charge, he is now in trouble, though, because here's, here's the problem. This leak, here, here, this is why it's news, because we already knew the obstruction investigation was probably underway. The reason it's news is because now if Trump gets mad and fires Mueller, if he says, listen, there's nothing here, this is a waste of time, you're going to stick around and bug me until the end of time, I'm firing you. If he does that, you can bet that the House Democrats will immediately claim that he fired Mueller as a secondary cover-up. So he fired Comey to cover up the Flynn stuff, and then he fired Mueller to cover up the Comey stuff. Right? They'll claim that it's, that it's obstruction squared. They're already doing this, right? John Lovett over at Pod Save America is saying that that's what would happen if Mueller were fired. So this leak has actually just ensconced Mueller's position. Does that mean that Mueller is the one who leaked in order to preserve his position? Who knows? But bottom line is that Trump has now been trapped, and that is nefarious. The leak is really nefarious. Uh, it, is, it does suggest dirty play here. It also suggests that it would have been so good for Trump if he had just been able to contain himself because Trump is right. It's a witch hunt. It is a witch hunt. And he's right that there's no underlying crime as far as we can see. But Trump insisted on donning a witch's hat and dancing around the fire shouting incantations while maintaining that, that there's no such thing as witches. Which is right, but don't act like one then. I mean, it's just... So, again, it's very frustrating because if you want to see Trump succeed, he has shot himself in the foot here. His best strategy now is just to shut up, let the investigation take its course. Believe me, people like me will be defending Trump on the obstruction stuff if all that comes out is what we already know. If all that's there is what we already know, I'll be defending Trump to the ends of the earth on the obstruction stuff because I don't see obstruction in the firing of Comey because I don't see any evidence that he was actually actively attempting to quash the Flynn investigation. He said to him, I hope you drop this thing. And then he said to some other people, can you get Comey to drop this thing? And then Comey didn't really drop the thing. And now the Flynn investigation is proceeding apace. There's not been any material effort other than he just doesn't like Comey and he's a volatile dude. Okay. Now it's time for some things I like and some things I hate, and then we'll get to, every Thursday we now do the big idea. We're going to talk about some big ideas that you need to know about. But first, I want to say thank you to our friends over at Stamps.com. So, are you sick of waiting in line at the post office? Are you out of stamps right now? You know, you, you haven't gone to the post office, and it's night, and it's closed, and you need a stamp because you're getting your mail ready. Well, that's what Stamps.com is for. They bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service 
right to your fingertips. You buy and you print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package, any class of mail using your computer and your printer. You can print it out directly onto stationery. You can print it out directly onto envelopes. You can print it onto a sticker. You can print it out onto a piece of paper and then cut it up and tape it onto the letter. That's how it works. Stamps.com even makes it this easy. They'll send you a digital scale, which automatically calculates exact postage, and they will help you decide the best class of mail based on your needs, so you don't even have to lease a postage meter. So you need to go to stamps.com right now. Use that promo code Shapiro at stamps.com. And then if you go out to the upper right, there's a microphone with the search bar and type in Shapiro. And that means you get a four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale without long-term commitments, which is just awesome. So you get to basically get some free postage out of it. You get that four-week trial plus postage and a digital scale that is shipped directly to you so that you can try out stamps.com. Once you've tried it, you're going to want to keep using it because... Who wants to wait in line at the post office? I mean, I kind of like the post office, but even I don't want to spend a lot of time over at the post office. So go to stamps.com, promo code Shapiro. You never have to go to the post office again. Okay, time for some things I like and then some things that I hate. So things I like, you know, Abraham Lincoln has a speech for pretty much every occasion, one of the greatest orators in the history of humanity. No one's actually heard him speak. So I can say one of the greatest orators in terms of what he wrote to speak in the history of humanity but there's a, a section from Lincoln's first inaugural, which he gave just as the Civil War was commencing, a very famous section of his first inaugural, in which he said this. He said, We are not enemies but friends. We must not be enemies. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory, stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this broad land, will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched, as surely they will be, by the better angels of our nature." So this is the famous Better Angels of Our Nature section of, of his first inaugural. In the aftermath of what just happened in Virginia yesterday, I would recommend that we see each other not as enemies but friends, but that's going to require some common values and some common beliefs because otherwise we just don't have anything to hold on to anymore. And those common beliefs are still things like liberty, like anti-violence in politics, things like we are all trying for the best available outcome, um, even if we're struggling to get there together. Uh, the, the vision that America has gotten better and that America was founded on great ideals. If we can't agree on these basic things, then this stuff that we saw in Virginia is just going to get worse. And that's a scary thing. Um, but Lincoln said this at a time when Americans were about to slaughter each other in the hundreds of thousands. I don't think that we're at that point yet, thank God. Uh, and we really don't have an excuse to be at that point, given the fact that there is not a crucial issue like slavery looming over the American horizon. But, you know, it's, it's worthwhile reminding ourselves every so often that as much as we disagree on politics... We are not enemies. Our enemies are out there, right? Our enemies are, are ISIS. Our enemies are people who want to murder us. Our enemies are regimes that want to repress their own people and harm the United States and harm your family. Our enemies are criminals who want to do all those things. Our enemies are not the guy across the way who disagrees with you about the marginal tax rate. Uh, and we, we ought to recognize that as much as, as we get upset about politics. Okay, time for some things that I hate. Let's do it. So I've reserved this all show long. It is the most astonishing, ridiculous thing ever. The New York Times ran the worst editorial in human history last night uh, over this shooting in Virginia. It was an insane editorial. So obviously they're going to stump for gun control because that's what the New York Times does. The New York Times has a simple formula. When a Muslim, a radical Muslim, shoots up a, or, an Orlando gay nightclub, then we have to look into why right-wing Christians are so anti-gay. When a left-winger shoots up a right-wing congressional softball game, uh, then we have to have conversations about gun control. When a right-winger shoots up 
a shoot something up or even somebody who's marginally associated with racism uh, or deeply associated with racism but marginally associated with the right wing shoots up a black church in Charleston, then we have to blame everybody who's ever flown a Confederate flag. So their, their formula changes based on who the victim is and who the perpetrator is. Well, in this particular editorial, not only do they call for gun control because a left-winger did the shooting, they also suggest that it's Sarah Palin's fault. This was the original version that went out last night. And this was the, the full paragraph, right? Okay, here we go. Was this attack evidence of how vicious American politics has become? Probably. In 2011, when Jared Lee Loeffner opened fire in a supermarket parking lot, grievously wounding Representative Gabby Giffords and killing six people, including a nine-year-old girl, the link to political incitement was clear. Before the shooting, Sarah Palin's political action committee circulated a map of targeted electoral districts that put Ms. Giffords and 19 other Democrats under stylized crosshairs. Conservatives and right-wing media were quick on Wednesday to demand forceful condemnation of hate speech and crimes by anti-Trump liberals. They're right. Though there's no sign of incitement as direct as in the Giffords attack, liberals should of course hold themselves to the same standard of decency that they ask of the right. This is insane. Insane. It is an outright lie. The New York Times had to retract it today. It is an outright lie that Sarah Palin's rhetoric led to Jared Lee Loeffner shooting Gabby Giffords. Jared Lee Loeffner was a full-on paranoid schizophrenic. Okay, he thought that the sky was orange and the grass was blue. Really, I mean, this is like in his memoirs, like in his, in his note. Okay, it's, this is total nut job stuff. The New York Times is pushing an absolute lie here. Sarah Palin has a very solid case for libel, actually. Because libel of a public figure is difficult to prove because you have to prove actual malice. But in this case, everyone knows that she was not related to the Jared Loeffner shooting. And yet they, and it's been debunked by the Times itself six years ago. And yet they're repeating that same myth because they have to find a way to blame the right. This isn't the first time they've done this routine. Again, after the Orlando shooting, they blamed right-wing rhetoric. They claimed that it was Christian right-wing rhetoric about trans people that led to the shooting in Orlando. Just absurd. Just absurd. Um, you know, Sarah Palin came out with a note. She said this is ridiculous, and they had to back down. But it's, it's amazing. That, that wasn't the only big mistake by the, the New York Times yesterday, by the way. The New York Times also blamed Sanders for the shooting. They, they, they had a piece by a guy named Yamish Alcindor. So the right was angry about the Palin mention. The left last night was very angry about this. The, here's what the piece said. It said, the shooting on Wednesday, which wounded four people, may prove to be an unexpected test for a movement born out of Mr. Sanders' left-wing populist politics and a moment for liberals to figure out how to balance anger at Mr. Trump with inciting violence. And people who are Sanders acolytes were saying, wait, Bernie didn't really incite violence. What are you talking about? So you wonder why the New York Times went after the Bernie people? Because they like Hillary. That's why they went after the Bernie people. So amazing how the only people who escaped the New York Times' wrath are the Hillary Clinton supporters. Those people are just fine, despite all of Hillary Clinton's myriad sins, despite the fact that there are a lot of Hillary supporters who are out there committing acts of violence during the actual election cycle, beating up Trump supporters, for example, in San Jose. You know, that, that doesn't matter, apparently. But, it, but the Sanders must be condemned, and the right must be condemned when a Bernie Sanders supporter goes nuts and shoots a bunch of conservatives. Amazing. Uh, the other thing the New York Times did, it's totally insane. They headlined, uh, there's a headline, their own targeted Republicans want looser gun laws, not stricter ones. And Jonathan Martin, who's the reporter from the New York Times, he tweeted, not only did Alexandria not prompt GOP to rethink gun laws, it emboldened some in the party on loosening gun laws. Okay, this is equivalent. There was a New York Times headline back in the 90s that said, shockingly, as crime rates go down, jail populations go up. Right. Okay, the reason that Republicans want looser gun laws is so that they could have defended themselves on that ball field instead of having to wait for the Capitol Police to show up. Okay, now on Thursdays, we've started to do something I like to call big ideas. And this is where we discuss a, a big idea that you need to know about so you have background when you discuss political matters. So 
just grab a drink here for a second. I want to talk about the unitary executive. Everybody's talking about Bob Mueller and the special counsel, and can Trump fire him? Can he not fire him? Could he fire Comey? Could he not fire Comey? Trump has the absolute right to fire anyone in the executive branch. He does. The con this is called the unitary executive theory of government. So the way that this works is that the Constitution has three separate branches of government. They have the judiciary, the executive, and they have the legislative. Every single function of government must be under one of these three silos. It must be in one of these three categories. You cannot have an agency that is independent of all of these things because then it's not answerable to anybody. So the Constitution only contains one provision that allows for the removal of the president. Okay, impeachment. It doesn't even allow for, for somebody working under the president to prosecute the president because he can fire that person. Like Nixon didn't violate the Constitution when he did the Saturday Night Massacre and fired the special independent prosecutor. He didn't violate the Constitution when he did that. He was impeached for it, but he didn't violate the Constitution, or he would have been impeached. The president can be impeached by a majority in the House and two-thirds conviction in the Senate. No crimes are actually necessary for impeachment. Impeachment was meant to be actually a pretty strong tool. The fact that it's only been used three times in American history, really only twice in American history for Bill Clinton and for Andrew Johnson after the Civil War is, is telling about how, how cautious the legislature has been in curbing the executive branch. But that is the sole tool, basically, for stopping the president of the United States or getting him out of office. So while the left is saying, we'll prosecute Trump out of office, the fact is Bob Mueller works for him. Everybody in the federal government falls under one of those auspices. Justice Scalia wrote a very famous opinion. It was in dissent in a case called Morrison v. Olson in 1981. What happened in that case is there was an investigation into supposed misconduct by the EPA by a special counsel, and Reagan wanted to shut it down, and the Congress tried to censor him or they tried to overcome him. In any case, the court found that Congress could do that. Congress could basically check the executive that way, and Scalia said that's not right. He said it is not for us to determine, and we have never presumed to determine, how much of the purely executive powers of government must be within the full control of the president. The Constitution prescribes that they all are. I fear the court has permanently encumbered the republic with an institution that will do it great harm. And what he meant by that is you don't want a situation in which there is somebody who works for Congress who has executive ability because that's not what Congress is supposed to do. Congress legislates, the executive executes. The separation of powers is crucial because if Congress can legislate and also execute, then you don't need the president of the United States anymore. The president doesn't even have the power of the veto. If they can just override him every time they want, then the president becomes moot. And if the president could just override Congress every time he wanted, then the question would become moot. You're supposed to have these checks and these balances. What that means is that, politically speaking, it may be unpalatable for Trump to fire Bob Mueller, but it would not be any sort of constitutional violation, nor would it even be a constitutional crisis were he to fire Bob Mueller. It was not a constitutional crisis when Nixon fired the special prosecutor. It ended with his resignation because impeachment was imminent, but that's the way the Constitution is supposed to work. So next time somebody says, he didn't have the power to fire Comey, BS, he had the power to fire Comey. He doesn't have the power to fire Mueller, BS, he has the power to fire Mueller, he can fire Rosenstein, he can fire any of these people, and then Congress can impeach him if they want to. That's the way the Constitution works, that's the way it was meant to work, the unitary executive theory of government. Okay, we'll be back here tomorrow with more on all of this. I'm Ben Shapiro, this is The Ben Shapiro Show. We'll get to more on this in just one second first. Pure Talk believes in American values and that free 
should mean, you know, like free. So when you switch to Pure Talk today, you'll get a free Samsung 5G smartphone. There's no four-line requirement, no activation fee, just a free Samsung that's built to last with a rugged screen, quick charging battery, and top-tier data security. Qualifying plans start at just 35 bucks a month for unlimited talk, text, 15 gigs of data, and a mobile hotspot. Pure Talk gives you phenomenal coverage on America's most dependable 5G network. It's the same coverage you know and love, but for half the price of the other guys. The average family saves almost $1,000 a year. So I challenge you to choose a company that actually doesn't hate your guts and shares your values. Let Pure Talk's expert U.S. customer service team help you make the switch today. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro to claim your eligibility for your free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone and start saving on wireless today. Again, go to puretalk.com Shapiro to switch to my cell phone company. I've been using them for years. They're fantastic. You'll love them as well. Go to puretalk.com Shapiro and claim your eligibility on that free brand new Samsung 5G smartphone. Start saving.